You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Good morning, Michael. Andre, what the heck did you set up for us this time? Uh, I think there was a little bit of a, a both of us. We got an email out of the blue uh, from a guy named Paul K. out on the west coast of the United States. And, and I said, you take this one and you just ran with that ball. That's right. Paul uh, hosts a podcast and uh, has been a wine vendor for a very long time. And he hosts a podcast called Wine Talks. Uh, and when I did my research before we booked the guest, it looks like he actually uh, is sort of the West Coast version of us. <laughs> there, there is no other version of us. But if you want to put that uh, moniker on somebody and, and hang that albatross on anybody's neck, sure, let's give it to Paul. So two guys talking wine. I think of it was Southern California, be like two dudes rapping, you know, vino or something. Right? <laughs> we're we're in, we're up in Canada, and you are uh, one's one's in Quebec. Uh, no, no, correct? we're both in we're both in Ontario. Just uh, if you take a look at the Great Lakes, there's Lake Ontario there. Uh, Michael yes. is just a stone's throw away from Buffalo, and I'm a little bit further up the highway in Toronto. We're we're in what's called the Golden Horseshoe. So I'm at the bottom of the horseshoe, and Andre's basically the top of the horseshoe. Okay, so since my since I've only been to Canada once, and that was in Montreal for the 1976 Olympics, and I was not el- eligible to drink wine at that time. Well, actually, I tried to buy something. <laughs> I tried to buy a six pack of beer on a Sunday. In Quebec, you can do that any age. Okay, not in 1976 because I got yelled out of the liquor store. That's probably because you didn't so speak angry. French. Yes, in French. She was so angry. I'm like, I don't, what did I do? <laughs> so, yeah, it's because you, did, you didn't speak French. I think uh, in Quebec, you're born with a six-pack. Yeah, you probably are, because uh, in, in, in my dad's wine shop, I mean, the liquor store in Palos Verdes in Southern California, I could walk in and get all the beer I wanted. I didn't think it was really a big deal to do. Uh, so tell me about I want to talk to you guys a little bit about the podcast, and we're going to get into the, the, the consumer confusion of wine in Canada and some of the COVID restrictions that have caused a lot of problems throughout the world, but uh, particularly in Southern California, I want to talk about Canada. But tell me your background in wine, your, your wine writers, um, critics, per se, were you tasting wines and rating them? What do, you, what do you do with your wine background? Well, age before beauty here, Andre, so I guess that's me. Yeah, there you have it. <laughs> uh, so uh, I've been a wine writer for, uh, for over 16 years, started... Um, uh, by just loving Ontario wine, and um, I, I, I don't know how many people in California know that Ontario makes, you know, not just ice wine, but actually, you know, real, honest-to-God, Cab Franc, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. all kinds of great stuff. And uh, I just I just started a, a website, and then uh, blossomed from there. So I, I travel as much as possible, not a, not this year, obviously, and not last year, uh, tasting all kinds of wine, writing about it, um, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a guy who drinks and I know things. Well, there you have it. You know, <laughs> I, I'm sure you could wax poetic after you do that. And so, but uh, tell me a little bit. Well, go ahead, Andre. You tell yeah, me. Yeah, Mike, uh, Mike I, I sort of started a similar way to, to Michael, but it was a little bit by accident. Um, I grew up in, in Western Canada, just north of North Dakota, so it's... I think a lot of similar industry, a lot of ranch land and farmland up there. And when I moved to uh, Ontario in 2007, I got my hands on every bottle of Ontario wine that I could. And I, I can't emphasize this enough. We make more than ice wine here in Canada. Uh, <laughs> some really great Pinot and Chard and, and Cab Franc if you're looking to, to check it out. But um, I work as a producer at News Talk 1010, one of the largest talk radio stations in Canada. And they um, 
they basically forced me to do a weekly segment on wine and i was just like yo i i don't know anything about wine uh and they said well oh, wow the listeners don't know that and um you know, yeah. I kind of took the opportunity to learn as much as I could, and my paths led me to Michael. And to be perfectly honest, uh, Michael having a few years under his belt uh, definitely influenced and sort of took me under his wing a little bit with our tasting together. And, um, you know, about five years ago, we started uh, the podcast together because uh, he has a broadcasting background as well. And that's how things came together. And we've sort of become the uh, de facto insider information on what's happening in uh, Ontario for uh, consumers and for producers. So if uh, anyone wants to learn anything about Ontario wine, we've got a really great series called the Legacy Series where we actually talk to the people who founded the Ontario wine industry. And, uh, you know, I know this is a long-winded thing to say, but if you're an American and you love your Oregon wine, the industry in Ontario mm-hmm. started about the exact same time with kind of the same sort of mindset. So, you know, when when Dickie Rath and uh, David Lett were planting their vines, we had Donald Zeraldo and, um, shoot, I'm having a brain fart, Michael, Kaiser. Carl Kaiser. I heard that. Uh, Carl, Carl Kaiser, Don Zeraldo. Yeah. Those are the people who founded founded our industry. So lots of stuff to well, check out. Well, they started the first first post-Prohibition winery uh, in Ontario. With Vinifera. People with don't Vinifera. realize that, that Ontario had Prohibition as well. Yeah, just, I was just our Prohibition led to Monopoly, uh, whereas the American Prohibition led to a little bit more of a free enterprise. Yeah, well, don't get me started on Joe Kennedy. <laughs> but... This is interesting a grassroots uh, approach to this. And for the for the listeners, ice wine is basically wine made from frozen grapes. And I think to call it ice wine, it actually has to be frozen in nature. Now you can't just put it in your refrigerator, correct? And, yes. and squish it. But tell has me, minus, uh, has to be minus ten degrees, and then it gets uh, it freezes on the vine, and then it gets uh, that pressed while it's still at minus ten. It's it's and by the way, it's, it's not 18, a bad It's thing eighteen to degrees, known eighteen for degrees that, right? Fahrenheit for your listeners. <laughs> Not minus yeah, eight. Right, not yeah, minus yeah, eight. Yeah, thank right, you. <laughs> Tell me, uh, also for the listeners, we very familiar with the, the Niagara Peninsula. Lots of wines from there, reds and whites, uh, interesting varietals. But other parts of Canada, the, the provinces, where are there interesting wines to have besides Ontario? British Columbia would be number one outside of Ontario. If you love, uh, mm-hmm. like, if you love California or Washington, BC, like the Okanagan is definitely a place to look. Um, we've got some really cool up and coming stuff that is so under the radar. I think most Canadians wouldn't know about it in Quebec. They're doing a lot That's of stuff. That's mostly uh, a lot of um, hybrids, uh, iced cider, yeah, mm-hmm. which, is, which is really good. And then they're doing a lot of uh, crazy little uh, varietals out there. And, and they're uh, using things called geotextiles to keep the, uh, the grapes... Uh, yeah so the thing is like i mean canada's cold in the winter but we have pretty decent summers Uh, a lot of the climate's really good for growing grapes um and then out on the east coast in nova scotia uh there's some wineries making some excellent sparkling wine uh some really good pinot noir and chardonnay starting to make an appearance but um some people i don't know if you've heard of benjamin bridge but they've been uh popping up on some international tastings uh side to side with some champagne that they've been doing quite well with and so I say, think PEI and New Brunswick are also kind of just dipping their toes into the idea of making wine as well. When you say cold, are we talking snow during the winter? It snowed oh, uh, this week in, in, in Toronto. We got about, uh, what, four inches, Michael? Well, it depends where in Toronto you are. If you're nearer the lake, it's less. But if you're um, here, in, here in St. Catharines, we got, I would say, about two. 
because you know I, I bought a I bought a wine club years ago, 1994 actually, and I went to Millbrook, New York to consummate the transaction and I'm seeing these folks out there in three feet of snow with their dry suits on pruning and I, and I thought to myself at the time what a labor of love uh, particularly in New York where the wines aren't necessarily all that great at least they weren't uh, but to be out there in these temperatures uh, you know pretty large vineyard to be pruning is that is that what happens here um, at these frozen tundras here that we have in, in Ontario or in Canada when we're trying to Yep. Yeah, we're, we're, we're very close to New York, so yes, that, yep, that, that what you saw in New York is, is what happens here in Ontario. Well, it's the other I will thing. have to say, though, that uh, and, and not to not to badmouth New York, uh, but I know many, <laughs> many people who come over from New York State taste our wine because we're more European in, in our way of making wine, whereas mm-hmm. New York is kind of the Wild West and uh, and. And they do a lot of sweet wine, sweet reds, sweet whites down in New York. Uh, not all of it, but I mean, there's there's quite a bit. Uh, whereas we lean a little drier um, in our wine style. I had an amazing uh, conversation with a woman named Tilar Mazio. Tilar Mazio is a New York Times bestselling author. She's written a few books. She's also written a couple travel books in the back roads of Napa and Sonoma. But she lives on Vancouver Island, um, and. I, I contacted her because of one particular book she had written called The Hotel of Place Vendôme about the occupation of Paris during the war. But as we were talking, as I was researching her to ask her questions, I find she owns a winery on Vancouver Island. And I thought, how fascinating is that? Uh, in that who goes there for wine? And she ends up making sparkling wine there. It's under the RAW, R-A-W, um, flag, which is a, an organization out of... Uh, UK by a MW named Isabel um, Legeron. And so raw wine means like you you just you don't do anything, right? You just, whatever is delivered to you from the farm and how you handle the farm. You don't even you don't even uh, till the soil because that oxygen kills some of the microbes. Uh, and you don't disgorge the sparkling wine, which is what she makes. So you leave all the floating leaves and things floating around the wine, which doesn't sound all that appealing, but you know there are people that like the raw movement. Oh, pet nuts uh, are very, very trendy. Pet uh, nuts start off our seasons uh, calling trends that we uh, we wished would die. And Andre, (laughs) I think raw was one of those things. I don't think we're calling it. I don't think we're calling it necessarily raw. But uh, I mean, a lot of wineries in Ontario are making pet nuts, and the the natural wine movement is alive and well among the the hipsters of of Toronto. And uh, some very interesting curated wine lists, but I do find with a lot of these wine bars, it's a bit of Russian roulette when you walk in. It's either going to be excellent or you're painting your ceiling with it. Yeah, there's a a serious uh, chasm between, I don't know if, I can't say properly made, and natural is not even a real word, but let's just say biodynamic wines. There are some that you, obviously when you taste them, that they're biodynamic or raw in this case. Uh, and there's other ones that, you know, actually have pretty good finesse, pretty good character. They're different. They're fresher. They're younger. They're brighter. But at least you don't taste like you're having uh, horse manure, you know? Yeah, that's, that's the biggest problem with, like, the this raw <laughs> wine. I don't like pet nat. I find that one to be one of those. That, do you have that in California? I'm going to No. No. I don't even know what it is. Pet. It's, so it's, it's a like that raw thing. Yeah. Where, they, where they don't filter the wine. It's basically uh, wine sparkling wine. It's a cheap way to make a sparkling wine, and uh, there's so much bottle variation. When you pop the cap, yeah, half of it ends up on your ceiling uh, because it's still fermenting in that bottle, 
and and it and it ends up being you know pretty expensive stuff uh, for half a bottle of wine. But the hipsters you know, love cheers. it. It's, it's, it's basically wine's undergoing primary fermentation still uh, as opposed to a secondary fermentation in the bottle. Oh, I see. It says two fermentations or could be eventually two fermentations increasing the atmospheres and maybe causing problems along the way. No, but you know, it's, it's interesting because this woman uh, – I'm going to guess the raw movement that she's part of because the raw movement doesn't just deal with sparkling wine. It's all wines that it's probably similar to that. You know, I, she doesn't filter it. She doesn't fine it. Um I don't know if she primary the primary fermentation is done in the bottle or not, uh, and she's trying to sell it to one of those organizations now. That and she went out of business, by the way, and that's the next subject about COVID. But she went out of business because of COVID. Oh, okay. She has three hundred cases of of this stuff, and so she, she sent to one of the organizations like mine that only sells wines of that character, and you know they do lab analysis and stuff like that. Have you seen before we get into the COVID thing? Uh, Burgundy, uh, Francis is learning new trellising and new farming techniques because there's been an increase in temperature. Um, sparkling wine out of England because now there's it's, it's hospitable towards uh, f- f- grapes that make Champagne, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay. Um, have, is there been an effect of? I'm not going to call it global warming, just the climate change in in Canada, as far as grapes are concerned. Well, we we would. I hate to say this, we would welcome a little bit warmer of a climate. (laughs) You know, and I think the other thing that it's hard to pinpoint whether or not it's had a huge impact because the the other thing is the industry here is so young that naturally the the winemaking has gotten more consistent as people have gotten better at it. We have a college that teaches winemaking down in Niagara as well. But I know when I first started writing about wine in 2010, we had some really great wineries that were vastly inconsistent. and you know the thing about the climate in Niagara on that on that peninsula right close to the lake is it does really well with a lot of different varieties of grapes and it, it's almost like there's a bit of a debate about whether or not the climate is more Bordeaux and more Burgundian so like you'll get really excellent elegant you know finesse like Pinot Noirs and you know in a hot summer like 2020 in Niagara was blistering hot like lots of days above 90 uh, I'm sure we hit a hundred a couple of days which is uh, Michael, did we hit a hundred a couple days? Wow! Um, do I, I don't remember a hundred. That's dramatic. But, uh, uh, I'm sure. I'm sure we we could. We're 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 seeing a lot more uh, as with everyone else, extreme weather. So yeah. like the winter of thirteen fourteen and then fourteen fifteen were incredibly cold winters. So Andre, you'll have to do the uh, the uh, the translation again. But it hit minus thirty. I, actually, I think it, it minus thirty two. Yeah, it, the, it, hit, the, it hit zero, the, which is the temperature that that kills. Vines, vines don't come back yeah. <laughs> after it gets to gets to zero. So, so, so like, we hit minus thirty two and minus thirty six in both those winters, and we we lost thirty percent of the crop the uh, one year, and then another thirty percent the next year. Wow! Uh, although fifteen was a great growing season, it was it was very uh, it was a very short crop kind of season. Yeah. Um, so we are seeing those those crazy uh, extremes. And you know the Niagara Falls does not freeze; it actually froze both winters. It had yeah. it hadn't frozen in a hundred years. Wow! And then it froze I I read two that. years in a row. Yeah, yeah. I think I read about that. In fact, there's pictures that were phenomenal about that. Uh, yeah. You know, I, and this is not a political show, so I'm just not venturing into the subject <laughs> for any political reason. But I was reading one of the Tlar's book is called Widow Clicquot, and, since, and I think that what's probably inspired her to make sparkling wine in Vancouver Island, but. Um, there was a mini ice age 
in Champagne, France in the late 1700s, early 1800s, it lasted like 15 years, like a cool wave that could have destroyed almost all the vines. It didn't, and people survived it. But I thought, how interesting is that? This a mini ice age? That's kind of what we're going through the opposite, but whatever. Let's not talk about that. But you said <laughs> you did say something you might be considered politically incorrect, and that'll lead us to the COVID conversation. And that is, uh, you're talking about, you know, you could do, use some more warming, war, warming weather. I'm like, where's COVID-20? Because COVID, for the wine business, at least the direct-to-consumer side, has been phenomenal on all fronts. I mean, wine.com, uh, wine access, uh, all my young, the small competitors like me have all uh-huh, have all uh-huh. experienced a, a great spike in the consumer trends. And this is um, where and- we get to see the, the real big difference between the United States and Canada. Yeah, exactly. We, we, Why? What happened? We, well, our our, wine, our wineries saw a bit of a, a spike, especially at the beginning. So, like in April and May, because they were all closed, uh, and they and they started to see uh, a little bit of a of a spike uh, in sales, uh, especially online sales. But when your online sales start out at you know almost nothing, you know any kind yeah. of jump is <laughs> is a big deal. Uh, and then we opened up a little bit for the summer, July. August, September, October, and then you know I think mid October we we shut it down once again, um, and you know it's gone online again. And the problem here is that uh, you know we don't have Andre. I think there's only one shipping company that actually ships wine because Canada Post refuses to do wine. Well, and apart from that too, we have a government monopoly in Ontario, so. Like the vast, vast majority of sales are run through the LCBO, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, which mm-hmm. is an organization that was created post-prohibition. We had prohibition in Canada, not as bad as the United States, uh, but it has had a long-lasting impact on the industry. Most people don't order wines from wineries direct, um, and there are a handful of wineries that have licenses for private stores that largely exist in, in grocery stores or in in plazas but the companies that hold these licenses are generally making mass produced factory produced wine bulk wine purchased from outside of canada blended with inferior hybrid grapes in canada or cheap bulk wine in canada and then sold to consumers for eight nine dollars a bottle which in canada is quite expensive because the lcbo doesn't give us any breaks on our prices uh i guess the bottom line is the the wineries here are struggling um, they naturally weren't mm. able to hire as many people as they normally would uh, because a lot of their wineries use migrant labor. It was a challenge in the spring, like right when COVID hit, to get our workers in from Mexico and Vietnam and and uh, Jamaica, where a lot of the, the workers come from. It was uh, it was a complete and utter gong show just how the the wine industry outside the Liquor Control Board of Ontario managed to get through the beginning of the pandemic. And, ju- and just to let you know, Paul, how, how the LCBO works, the LCBO has uh, what's called a floor price, which means you cannot sell wine under this price. So like mm-hmm. something like Two Buck Chuck, even if it came to Ontario, would have to be uh, at least, I think the floor price is about seven eighty five these days. Yeah. So it would have to be $7.85. And Seven Buck Chuck uh, just doesn't have price. the same it ring to it. could not go any lower. Seven Buck Chuck just doesn't have seven, the same ring to it. Seven Buck Chuck. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's interesting because when I started hanging around my dad's wine shop in the 70s, uh, it was very similar to that in California. I'm not sure if it was a federal thing or not. Probably not. Where um, 
I could not sell Jack Daniels, or we could not sell Jack Daniels cheaper than the other guy. We couldn't sell uh, at that time the same Mondavi cab cheaper than the other guy. There was a book called Patterson's. That was the Bible. That's what the prices you charged. They weren't controlled like it sounds like you you have in Canada. Still have. So it sounds like to me. Um, you you have no walk-in trade, you have no tasting room trade, and there's really no direct-to-consumer trade because, as we talked off camera there a little bit, that you cannot ship amongst uh, stores and residents in Ontario. How about the other provinces? Can you ship uh, between uh, a, a retail store or a state store to to a consumer? Not a retail legally. store or state store? What are you talking about? Yeah, not legally. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Am I nuts? Well, I mean... Oh, it's insane. Like, like, listen, Michael and I have been beating that that drum for a, a long time, and you know, I've written columns. I, I've written a column columns in newspapers in the past where you know I proudly I proudly flout the law as much as I can. Thankfully, Canada Post isn't too diligent with checking packages, so I'll discreetly send a case of wine, say to a family member outside of the province that they can't get in Ontario. But the, the consumer, the consumer. Now you've been flagged, you. Andre. Oh, you that's fine. You, you have to pack the hell out of it. Right? Oh, I, listen, I've. I've written. I wrote about it in a nationally distributed newspaper. If they haven't caught me yet, I don't think it's going to happen now. Yeah, <laughs> but, but I mean, the consumers olive oil on the outside, and it's <laughs> yeah, of course. Canada. We don't throw well, the consumers no, hurt. The consumer. The consumers get hurt from it because the selection varies greatly from province to province. Um, Ontario is right next to Quebec, obviously. So the Quebec have their own monopoly, the SAQ, similar to the LCBO, and they have. And um, uh, I won't say amazing because I'm talking to someone from California, but they have a half decent selection of French wine. And Michael and I frequently need to get friends and colleagues to mule wine for us. Oh, you're going to Montreal or, or Gatineau for the day? Here's our shopping list. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Wow. <clears throat> can you can you drive it over state lines? Not in not, theory, no. Not province no. lines, I guess. Not legally, but we don't in have checkpoints. In theory, no. You're not allowed yeah. to. You're not allowed to do. But um, uh, it. it... <laughs> No mounties, still do no it. mounties on horses and the red jackets uh, yeah. policing provincial borders. Thank God, totally do right. So, so I, I got I got an answer for you though because you said you wrote olive oil on the side of the box. If they stopped it, the LBCO LBCO dropped, stopped the package before they open it. You just tell them it's vinegar, and they'll say because you haven't tasted it yet, right? Correct. It's like, have you? <laughs> how do you know it's not? The stuff I sell is vinegar. It's not very good. Okay, so don't don't bother me because how much volatile acid has to be in there before it's no longer wine? It's vinegar. So well, as much I, as I'd love to do that, I think it's Canada Post that that looks it up. The LCBO, you know, all they want is their Canada tax Post. dollars. Let's yeah, be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Anyways, on this week's podcast, how to ship wine from province to province uh, <laughs> as discreetly as possible. Well, as you as yeah, you know, exactly. the, discreet is discreet is the word. That's how you do it. If look, it's no different in the states, except that we have to deal with it fifty ways. You know, we we repealed prohibition, and Joe Kennedy was was instrumental in doing that and making sure that every state got control of its own destiny. Because that's more like Guido, you get Florida, and and uh, Hervé, you get you know Canada. I mean, sorry, you get uh, New Jersey. That that's all it really was. And you know why would they do that? Now the wholesalers of America have a stranglehold direct to consumer shipments. It's the only product in America that you can't ship like liberally any way you want to. And there's been a couple states that have thrown people in jail for doing it. So it's we deal with it all the time. There are it is a moving target. We get some states that decide, okay, it's okay for retailers to do it, but not wineries. It's okay for wineries to do it, but not retailers. And then we find out two weeks in the trade magazine that one state open and one state closed. And then the, our biggest problem is, uh, and I guess it's not as big a problem as what you guys are having, but 
uh, New Hampshire, for instance, might charge us by the gallon. Well, wine isn't sold by the gallon. I mean, the case is not even a round gallon, uh, you know, gallonage. Um, so they'll charge us a certain percentage by the gallon. So we've got to calculate the 750 ml into gallons. Uh, the state next door might be quartz. And the state next door might be not gallons, but it might be percentage of alcohol. So if it's over 14 and a half or under 15 or under 14 and a half, whatever. So we have, uh, you know, compliance issues that are a pain. You, you also have dry counties, don't you? Like completely well, dry counties where you can't have booze in them at all. Yes. I'm supposed to be able to keep track of the counties in, for instance, Kentucky that are dry. And, and we can ship next door, but I can't ship that to that particular county. Uh, Alabama, I, I can a customer can join. We're one of the few clubs that actually ships to a, a, an Alabama, to Alabama, but we have to ship it to the state store where the consumer can pick it up from there. Now, is it true Jack Daniels is actually made in a dry county? That's true. You cannot taste Jack Daniels at the Jack Daniels plant. But, but probably not too far away, you can drink as much as you want. In fact, Kentucky's a very interesting... Well, Jack Daniels is Tennessee, but Kentucky is... One of the oldest wine states in the country, you can ferment 20,000 gallons a year or 25,000 gallons a year, no matter what size you are. In other words, in California, you you can make 100,000 gallons if you want, or 200,000 or 2 million. doesn't matter. You just qualify yourself. But in Kentucky, you're not allowed to ferment any more than, I think, 25,000 gallons of anything. But you can distill as much as you want. <laughs> so figure that one out. So the wine trade in, in Kentucky is sort of stifled by the distilled spirits trade. But um, that's hilarious. Uh, let's talk about. Let's continue to talk about COVID for a second because here in Southern California, they just released uh, are just allowing now outdoor dining, and you know the restaurants were choked off. Uh, I am very close to the to uh, the restaurant business. My daughter's a baker, and we have a cousin here in Southern California who's a had a restaurant for thirty years. He had one hundred and forty seats inside and then they shut that down and then they allowed you to open outside and he had 135 seats and he was doing much better during the outside dining uh, year over year than the previous year inside dining okay so figure that out but then the governor of california shut that down so these poor people you know nothing zero dollars the wine trade stops and if if you and i start a winery tomorrow in napa you put up all the money, and I'll just do the selling. Then um, <laughs> we're going to try to get restaurants to buy the wine because they're going to buy the wine off their list. If it's on the list, they got to buy more of it. It's like an annuity. I don't have to make a sales call to get more wine sales from you as a restaurant tour. But in many books and wineries, were eighty percent restaurant trade to zero. You know, for the last six to eight months, zero dollars coming in through through the restaurant trade. So they're coming to folks like me. So we started getting access to wines that I'd never seen before. Silver Oak, Camus, Austin Hope, places uh, that we're desperate to sell some stuff. Can you help us? And I'm like, I'll help you, but you got to, don't forget me, you know, in the future uh, when this thing lifts. So it sounds like in Canada, there's just zero, nothing going on. No direct-to-consumer sales, no walk-in trade, no restaurant sales, no anything. Uh, not, How does well, that survive? Uh, not, not at the, at the at the moment, we, we, we are pretty much shut down. We are under what they call a state of emergency. Uh, you, can, you can buy online. Uh, we, uh, the, a winery will, can ship it to you, uh, but there's no tasting uh, at the door. Um, well, I, I, can... I was in a store today, and, and, and you couldn't even go into the actual, not a wine store, but a, a, just a retail store, and, and you had to order online. They wouldn't even let you in the store. You had to you had pick it up at their door, and they gave you the, the, the machine to, to make your payment. So there's no browsing through any stores. 
Wow. Yeah, I, 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 so- I got to say, though, seeing on, on Instagram today, like a lot of the, the wineries in California starting to take the bookings, you know, it's I, it gives me a little bit of, of hope for what spring will be in Ontario. Um, so another thing I didn't mention off the introduction is I run a small wine company on top of what we're doing. I wanted to get a better taste of what it takes to run the business and see what it takes to go from from grape to grape to bottle. Uh, and I make about 400 cases of wine a year with my company. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, we had 200 cases of rosé that we needed to sell. And I was sitting there talking to my, my business partners because the way it works when you're selling and, and 80% of our business was to restaurants. And on top of that, when you sell to restaurants in Ontario, the norm is 30 to 60 days payment. So you drop a case off and you magically hope the restaurant writes a check for you in, in 60 days. And let's just put it this way. When the pandemic started, we we immediately had to come up with a plan where it was just like, you know, our, our rosé is called When Pigs Fly. It's got a cute label with some pigs with jetpacks. And we were already having a plan to print up little stickers of masks to put on the pigs where it's just like, okay, if we're still sitting on inventory in September, we're going to cut the price in half to break even, get these bottles out the door, and we're going to call it a, a pandemic discount. But some of the restaurants, so one of the nice things about the pandemic, if I can call it a nice thing, is our some of our alcohol laws got modernized where mm-hmm. restaurants let you take bottles to go. You weren't able to do that before. So what restaurants did was they cut their markups on the bottles. And all these restaurants in downtown Toronto, these fancy wine bars with really access to really great wines you don't see at the LCBO, are now able to sell wines to go. Um, and, and we were lucky enough to end up on a couple of wine lists where we ended up not having to discount our discount our wine. But the other thing that changed too is as someone who sells to wineries, restaurants are now paying up front. But you know, mm-hmm. it's the same thing where... With certain people and certain agencies, you're having a bit of leeway. But it's exactly like you said, Paul. It's, you know, we're going to give you a bit of help now. You may have been hesitant to deal with us in the past, but don't forget when this is over. Don't forget us when this is over. That's the key. You know, we're we're, we're buying. We're buying a ton. People. The only thing that's happened, too, is that people are buying better around here. Uh, uh, the, the type of wines has gone up. The quality of the wine, not quality, because all the wines you sell are very good. But uh, they, they're, I guess this disposable income is sitting on their on their kitchen table table now so they can afford to buy different wines and i was having this conversation today with an old old friend in the wine business and i thought you know who's going to go back if i'm if because of covid i'm buying now austin hope uh, 45 dollars cabernet from paso i like that big juicy style it's going to be hard to say all right i'm going to go back to the 15 dollars cab i bought from the market i it, it, particularly since wine is such an important part of our culture and and when you're enjoying a good glass of wine and it starts to make you feel something different, uh, how are you going to go backwards and not spend the money that you were spending before? But um, do, did your restaurants or did the ABC – well, we call it the ABC here. We had relaxed laws in California as well. One of them was I get longer to pay. I don't have to pay in 42 days. I can pay in 60 if I want. Uh, the other is they're allowing – restaurants to make cocktails and put them in like a mason jar or even a styrofoam cup with a lid and take them to go uh, is that was that allowed in in, in well that was that was never allowed in uh, during during covid what what they did allow though as i said they, they allowed or as andre said they allowed the restaurants to as long as you sold food with your wine you could take a bottle with you which, bottle, is, right. which is nice and that was supposed to expire i think at the end of december and they they've now made it permanent and people uh, people have been doing which, cocktails to go at the beginning it was clandestine where you know like the wine bars were they got on board with the hey you'd show up and buy 
a, a 50 cent bag of chips and walk out of there with your, you know, a luxe Corton for a hundred bucks that you can't get at the LCBO <laughs> and, you know, walk over there with the chips. But, you know, it's been really fascinating to see how restaurants have hopped on board. Like my favorite wine bar in Toronto, just a shout out. If anyone who's listening to this comes here, go to archive at 909 Dundas street. Uh, one of the best Beaujolais lists in the country. Um, when I first went there, he wow. was selling little packs of almonds for a buck to go. The second time I went there, he'd gotten his kitchen up and running. They were making homemade hot sauce to go. And it was just like, they actually started selling food that I wanted to take home with me and not like wow. and not like, you know, French fries and a burger, like pantry items, like stuff that's ready to go. Well, Andre, well, I've also seen that, 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 a, that a, a restaurant around Taroni's is now got a, a, a shop where you can buy, you know, prepackaged foods and they have a huge uh, or what it looks like a huge wine shop online. So that's that's kind of neat what what some restaurants and, and are, are are adapting to this, you know, COVID thing. I think some of these guys always had it in the back of their mind. The moment they start letting me sell wine, I'm going to do it. And the moment they did, they just jumped on it whole hog. Because some of these websites that have popped up are just amazing. And you're like, how could you do that in like two months? Totally. You know, it's, it's really interesting because uh, I think a lot of California restaurants, and I don't know about the rest of the states, but if you own an on-premise license to pour distilled spirits, you are, are you already, you were, that's easy for you to say, you were already allowed to sell bottles out the back or front. Uh, it wasn't a restriction, but I don't think anybody knew that uh, because they always thought it was, probably wrong so you can do that you always have done that you but you couldn't take a bottle of hendrix gin or jack daniels which you can do now it'll it'll be interesting to find out if you can uh if that'll continue to go forward Um, ours is ours is supposed to ours is now considered permanent because you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube right right that's that's true that's what i think that's 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 what i think the provincial government here uh, has done to to make it easier, but I can't imagine that when this is all over and we're all back to you know eating in restaurants and things like that, uh, that they're going to say, okay, we, we, we're we're going to you know not allow you to do that anymore because I think people would will lose their. Well, well I think it's. Mind, I think, yeah, I think, I think... Like <laughs> I'll tell you what, uh, you want a government overreach. I'm going to say it. Uh, there was a time here during, in California where they started to prescribe to you. They actually put this out as a phenomenal. Uh, uh, overreached by the government because they were doing exactly that not a bag of almonds but they were doing like top ramen you know for 25 cents a, a, and then some hot water awesome. and that was food and then you could have a drink and so they started to actually make a list of foods that qualify for food and ones that don't so the most ironic thing was chicken breast qualified as a meal but chicken wings didn't so figure that one out <laughs> chicken, oh come on Rob, chicken ramen, wings is inst- my meal for instant God's ramen sake. and riesling instant ramen and riesling that is that is a pairing i could get behind or hey if you've got ramen access to some ice wine why not get that sweet and that's salt really there? funny ramen and riesling i like that story you know one of the things we talked about briefly and we've got a few more minutes but um i wanted to talk about um the digital presence of wineries in Canada and how that works there. Because here, it was very obvious uh, when COVID started, the, the the larger wineries that had e-commerce sites, that had uh, a customer service department maybe, um, they had library reserves that they could dig into if, you know, because we had the fires in, in 2020 and 2018, and, you know, they had library reserves to, to sustain some kind of direct-to-consumer environment. But it was very clear that the small wineries, that the boutique wineries, the farmers that were growing grapes to make wine but didn't 
know that you should put a customer service rep in front of a monitor and wait for the chat button to go off. Uh Um, Those people are really struggling. The rest of the wineries uh, that had digital presence, you know, they're surviving well. And now maybe you guys want to, you know, come to Napa with me and we'll find some distressed property and Uh augment the flying pig rosé. Oh, Please I know. My, I know. Sorry. I know. My wife would be all about that. She uh, every time a <laughs> bottle of California Cab comes in this house, there's practically a straw in the bottle. I uh, thought that was a Washington Cab. And Washington Cab. She just yeah, like she wow. just likes big juicy, big juicy cabs. So yeah, you know, I'd, I'd be game to be down in Napa in a in a heartbeat. Um, no, I, it's it's sort of the same thing here. But I mean, it's a fortunate thing about just the Ontario wine industry is small. Um, it's it's very small. So most of the people who are selling are are very very tiny. And because we have the 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 monster that is the LCBO, and you know I say monster in terms of size. I mean it's a very civilized way to buy wine. So no huge knocks at them. But you know the cost, the consumer base even for a medium sized winery should be doing like five to fifteen thousand cases. Is you know it's usually as simple as picking up the phone and calling the winery. I know for my my when pigs fly rosé i was doing some direct to consumer we were doing free shipping on six bottles or more and you know the 20 30 people who were doing that when we were doing our bottle runs it was pretty easy to easy to manage um and i think even for people doing five to fifteen thousand cases you know we've we've got pretty decent infrastructure to get online stores set up quickly you know the, the the interesting part of the whole thing is the lcbo is this monolith and they they're online presence really stinks oh it's gotten uh, better so, they, they oh, pivoted yeah. pretty quick they pivoted it, pretty quick well you try try healthcare in california and see how it's but, but, I mean, but i mean you know being who they are andre they should be able to you know you should be able to grab any bottle uh on put it in your cart you know uh um, pick it up at, at a at an lcbo they, it's just it's such, it's such they don't a care. They don't weird. Care. They don't. They they just want to sell as much wine as they possibly can. And they don't care how they sell it. No. Uh, their online uh, is just their their shopping carts. Their what wines they have available and not available to put in a cart. It's just a nightmare to to shop with them online. It, it what it is the LCBO's thing is a resource to find it if a shop has wine and then you go. Yeah, you know, really I good. actually, sorry, I, I do want to, there's something we pass over real real quick that I just want to circle back because I, I don't know the answer to Michael. So you said you were drinking better during the pandemic. And, and Paul, for me, I was drinking better because I have a, a, a new wine collection. Michael has 2,000 bottles in his cellar. I have a, a few hundred. But let's just put it this way. I hit the Burgundy and the Bordeaux that I was supposed to be saving for a special occasion because if the world's ending, what else are you going to drink? I need That's to know, right. and I know in Ontario, talking to the various wineries, the sales spike for the local wineries was for the the cheap stuff, the entry level stuff. So people in Ontario grabbed the cheap stuff. Michael, what were you drinking at the beginning of the pandemic? I need to know this. Were you drinking more expensive <laughs> or less expensive? You guys well, hash this out. Yeah, don't, don't worry. Well, about I guess in the in the summertime, I started just uh, playing around, you know, because. Uh, Andre makes it sound like I have this this great seller, and I I have a you know I have about twenty twenty to twenty five hundred bottles in there, but a lot of it Good is size. is is still very plonkish, uh, and I have like twenty year old bottles of you know stuff that was never meant to age twenty years, mm-hmm. and the fun part is is to open some of them up and go oh my god you know that Yellowtail Reserve actually did act manage to to survive fifty years. As hey, hey, that was before Yellowtail went to 20 grams per liter residual sugar. At one Correct. point, it was wine. But it's amazing. Well, it's a good point. I end up opening five to find one. 
Uh, but well, I, it, it's the shock the fun part. that $12 bottle that is aged 12 years. That's kind of fun. That's the fun part. And I, and the question was, did you, what happened at the end? Were you drinking well, at the end? We're still in it, but are you, did you up that plonk to double plonk or what? No, what'd you end up? No, I still have no. <laughs> plonk to, to, to drink. I, I'm, I'm planning to drink every bottle in that cellar or at least open the cork. <laughs> you know, there's a great article uh, in the, um, New York Times by Eric Asimov this this last week and articulated the idea that there are some very fine wines, really, and that's what I taste every Tuesday, um, that are very reasonably priced and can give you the same experience that somebody who's handpicking, you know, a, a Clolaroche or something um, even though it's 12 or 15 or $20. And we've all known that. We all know that the value of wine is not necessarily the price, but it's the experience of wine that, that we want people to understand and, and, and you know, get their arms around. And his, the way he wrote it, and I, I'm, he's going to be on the podcast in a week or two, um, was fascinating to explain that everyday glass of wine can have just the same ethereal value as the Clos And I, I want to I want to peel that subject back with him. Just that subject alone, probably for forty five minutes, because it's so valid, and and that's what you're saying now. You, you, well, even though you have to go through five glass, five bottles to find the one, um, you're finding the one, and that's that's pretty fun to do. And that's what the experience I, of wine I, is about. I, I totally believe that that uh, everybody can drink well for well here in uh, Ontario for under twenty five, <laughs> uh, in the states under twenty, around fifteen. I think you can always find a really great bottle of wine that you're going to enjoy, and I think that's what it's all about. It's about the consumer's enjoyment, because I don't. I, I've I've talked to many people. I, I teach wine classes, and you get them tasting, and they go, "Oh, I tasted this hundred dollar bottle. I didn't like it as much as I like the twenty dollar bottle." One, it's all yeah, about their taste. But happened. two, if you can't tell the difference between a hundred dollar and a twenty dollar bottle, then buy the twenty dollar bottle. What's the point of buying the hundred? You're right. Hey guys, this has been a fascinating conversation. I want to pick it up uh, next time. I've got to wrap it up today, but uh, oh, would love to. So many subjects to talk about. Man, even just hearing that things in California aren't uh, the land of milk and honey that we think, but I think it's the reason why people like people like you, and if we can pat ourselves on the back a little bit as well, the reason why podcasts like this are important is to just help you know make that connection between agriculture and and who, the people who make the wine and wine and help the governments get their heads out of their asses that uh wine isn't <laughs> a big scary alcoholic thing and we need to start helping the people who make it and the farmers i i totally agree and you, you nailed it on the head this has been a fascinating conversation i think we can talk for hours and i think that we can come back with, uh, I want to talk about food and wine in Canada. I want to talk about um, uh, the continuing effects, the, the post-COVID effects, assuming it's, it's freeing up here. Um, there's, there's many subjects you guys are uh, hoot to talk to. I appreciate the time. No, thank Thanks, you for Paul, having us. Thanks, appreciate yeah. being on. Cheers. Cool. Cheers. That was a lot of fun. Like, that was a lot of fun. I mean, it, it, I always find it interesting to talk to people about how wine laws and distribution works in uh, other countries. But, I mean, it was nice to get the COVID perspective as well. Yeah, I, uh, I read a book years ago uh, by a guy who is a who's a winemaker and he was a lawyer. Uh, and I one of these days I'll I'll have to look it up for our listeners because it's a fascinating book about how wine laws um, came into the U.S. 
and um, and how it went state by state as Paul was talking uh, about. And so that book is is fantastically uh, full of information and 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 really eye opening to everybody. Thinks the U.S. is um, uh, you know the the wild west of uh, wine and booze, but it's actually you know fifty wild wests. Yeah. Anyways, I'm looking forward to uh, when we can get a chance to chat with him again because I think we've got a lot of other stuff we could talk to, talk about. I think we could spend days. Uh, so, anyways, you can support this podcast, Two Guys Talking Wine, by checking us out on Patreon. We uh, very much appreciate the support when people do take the time to help us out. It is not expensive to make this podcast, but we do have a few bills we have to pay every year. Yeah, so we'd appreciate uh, you know a few dollars, and uh, if you listen to the all the way to the end of the podcast, you can hear who uh, has become a producer for us. Ooh, very exciting. I'm Andre Prue from AndreWineReview.ca. Follow me on social media at AndreWineReview. And I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. Can be found as The Grape Guy or Michael Pincus on a variety of social medias. As always, Andre, I think I'm going to be mellow today. Yeah? Good night. Okay. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. This episode of Two Guys Talking Wine was produced by Jim Ray and Adam Duran.